we've encountered a lot of wild and spectacular stuff in Inferno, but let me tell you, we have never encountered anything so far like Canto 28. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and we're about to set foot in this podcast, Walking with Dante, into perhaps the wildest canto of all of Inferno. Some shocking ones ahead in Purgatorio and Paradiso, but this may be the doozy of all for Inferno. If you don't know where we are in this slow walk through Dante's masterwork, we are down in the eighth circle of fraud in hell, way toward the bottom. This circle is made up of many different pouches that hold various fraudsters. We are about to see the ninth pouch, so way down toward the bottom of fraud itself. We have come from, back from, Ulysses and Guido da Montefeltro, who are going to sit inside this canto too. Guido da Montefeltro particularly sits inside canto 28. We'll talk about that as we get to those pieces. If you're unfamiliar with any of that language, well, hey, there's a lot behind us. You might want to catch up or you can drop in here. In any event, these are the opening 21 lines in my English translation, rough as it is, of Canto 28 of Inferno. Even with unbound words, who could tell about the blood and the wounds that I now saw, even if he told the tale of bunch of times. For certain, no tongue could pull it off, because neither our discourse nor our memory has the open space to contain so much. If only all these people could be brought together again. The ones who, in that fortune-blasted land of Puglia, wailed over the blood that the Trojans shed because of their long war that ended with heaps of rings from the corpses, as Livy writes, and he doesn't make mistakes, as well as all those who've been hacked up by blows in their resistance to Robert Guiscard, and all those whose scattered bones are still piled up at Ceperano, where every Apulian played it false, and at Tagliacozza, where old Erard de Valary made his victory by schemes rather than by armaments. If some of these could display their run-through limbs and others their severed stumps, it still would not begin to come to terms with the horrid ways of the ninth pouch. That was a complicated passage, admittedly super complicated because of all the historical referencing. We're going to go through that. We're going to start at the top of this passage with a reference to the Aeneid that has now become almost a trope in commentary that explains the opening lines of Canto 28. Then I want to talk you through the history. I don't want to go too deep into that history. It's pretty complicated that Dante starts out here with history, but I want to really focus on a couple implications implications from that history. And then I want to come back to those opening lines because you know I can't let go of the phrase unbound words. So let's get started. 
The canto opens, even with unbound words, who could tell about the blood and the wounds that I now saw, even if he told the tale a bunch of times? For certain, no tongue could pull it off, because neither our discourse nor our memory has the open space to contain so much. At this point in commentary, it's fairly commonplace to point out that this is a reference to what the Sibyl says at the end of her discussion of Tartarus in the Aeneid. I'd like to read you that passage. It's in book six. It's line 625 through 627. And I'm using the fabulous new translation by Sarah Rudin, which is just gorgeous. If you want to read the Aeneid, I can't recommend more Sarah Rudin's new translation. She has an incredible facility with the, how do I want to say, the colloquialisms of the Aeneid, and she puts it into much less austere language than some previous translators have done. This is the bit. Uh, Basically, Aeneas and the Sibyl have come to a certain point where Tartarus is ahead of them, the lowest pits of hell in this tour of the underworld that Aeneas undergoes. The Sibyl has kind of explained who's down there, Titans and others, Phlegas, who we know as a boatman on the River Styx, she explains is down there, Theseus, Others are down inside deep Tartarus where Aeneas can't go. And at the end of all of that discussion of the incredible punishments down in deep Tartarus in the Aeneid, she says, A hundred tongues and mouths, a voice of iron, wouldn't allow me to describe the crimes in all their forms or list the punishments. This bit right here is seen as kind of the background text for the opening of this canto where Dante complains that even if he used unbound words, he couldn't explain what he sees or he couldn't contain what he sees inside this pit. This passage was pointed out by Dante's own son, Pietro di Dante, in a very early commentary on uh, comedy, and it has since sat there. So we should just think, before we move on into the historical backgrounds of this passage, that it does begin with Virgil, or at least begins with a whiff of Virgil. It begins with a whiff of the poet who wrote about the founding of empire. That will become incredibly important to what's ahead of us, because empire is going to be at the crux of some of what goes on in Canto 28, and that we have this uh, reference behind the scenes to the poet who wrote this hymn to Augustus and and Rome and its glory as an empire, that we have this whiff of his words behind it says something, well, dare I say it, ironic about the passages that are to follow. But we'll get into that the more we get into Canto 28. Let's pass on to the difficult bits of history. I'd like to read you these lines. And again, if you want to follow them, they are on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com, same place. You can read along my translation there. This is a difficult passage to translate. It's got a lot of torqued uh, lines in it, some difficult twisted syntax that goes on inside of it. And it's hard to bring it into modern English. I took a few liberties here, I should tell you, in order to get it into modern English, but I'm trying to get as close to the sense as I I think is there. So let me read you these lines. If only all these people could be brought together again. So now you hear that we're about to have a list, a giant list of all these people. The ones who in that fortune blasted land of 
Apulia wailed over the blood that the Trojans shed because of their long war that ended with heaps of rings from the corpses, as Livy writes, and he doesn't make mistakes. Let me just say two things about this. When Dante here writes Puglia, he probably does not mean what you and I now think as the modern administrative district of Puglia. Rather, he means something about the entire southern part of the Italian peninsula. If you take it from essentially Gaeta and you go south from there, the kingdom of Naples and south from there, he's talking about that entire region because the battles that go on here and the references that go on here are to a larger region than what we now think of as the the modern bureaucratic administrative district of Puglia. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the Livy reference, as Livy writes, and he doesn't make any mistakes. He's talking about Titus Livius, the Roman historian chronicler, born 59 before Common Era, died 17 Common Era. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but Dante may actually not know Livy. Um, it's questionable. This has been a huge debate in commentary. Not all of what Livy wrote has survived to our day. And the question is, what part of that would Dante know? Would he know other parts besides what we know? And that he's picking this up either from Augustine, this idea that there was a battle in which basically the rings were torn off the corpses and there were so many that they made heaps of rings. He's picking this up from Augustine or from Augustine's student, Paulus Orosius. Many commentators think that Dante is getting actually his information from them, although he's fudging it here and putting the much bigger name of the Roman writer Livy here, perhaps as a counterweight to the Virgilian reference at the front of the passage. That's pretty complicated stuff. And perhaps we could just turn away from it a little and say what it seems as if Dante is doing in this passage is underscoring or needing to prove his point by citing a very austere classical writer. We haven't seen too much of this in Inferno. We haven't seen too much of the point at which Dante says, hey, you know, what I'm writing is so big and explosive, I got to underwrite it with a big reference, a direct call out to a previous writer. We've seen it a few times. It's not that it's never happened, but it's rare. And it's interesting that it happens in this passage. And I want to note it right here, the underscoring by using Livy's name. And then I'm going to come back to it later when we talk about our implications. Let's just, again, look more at the passage. It goes on after the Livy references say, as well as, so here are more of the corpses or the dead people that can be brought together. All those who've been hacked up by blows in their resistance to Robert Guiscard. Robert Guiscard is a Norman adventurer. He is the Duke of Puglia and Calabria, um, the modern notion of Puglia and Calabria here. And you should just know that, we'll talk about this in a minute, that he fought the Greeks and the Moslems in southern Italy and Sicily. We'll talk more about him in a minute uh, and how his warfare worked out. And the passage goes on. All those scattered bones are still piled up at Ceparano. This is a reference to Manfred's battles 
in southern Italy. The Ceparano, there may be a way that Dante actually gets this wrong. Manfred didn't actually fight a battle necessarily at Ceparano, although he passed through there on his way trying to defeat the French and Charles of Anjou. Uh, Manfred didn't necessarily fight a battle right here, but nonetheless, this is the town on the way to the point at which Manfred fought his final battle, where basically the barons of Apulia abandoned him and fled away and left him to be caught up by the French forces. The passage then goes on, and at Tagliacozzo, where old Erad de Valari made his victory by schemes rather than armaments. Again, a little bit of a difficult uh, reference here. This is uh, this is a reference to the French lord and constable of Champagne, of Champagne. He basically went on a crusade to the Levant and on his way home passed through southern Italy where Charles of Anjou and those wily French were currently enjoying the benefits of what had happened um, when they in fact had put Manfred to the rout. They have been now faced in a battle by Conradin, who is the nephew of Manfred and the grandson of Frederick II. And at Tagliacozzo, they were advised by this Erard, this crusader, to hold back their forces. So basically what they did is they let uh, Conradin attack. They only showed a piece of their forces under the alleged scheming of Erad de Valari. And then once Conradin's troops were disordered and had begun to get tired, suddenly they showed all their troops and thereby defeated Conradin in the south of Italy, allowing the French to fully control it. There's all the battles that take place and some of the history behind it. Let me just sum it up for you. Basically, we have four battles that are referred to here. By making reference to the Trojans, who shed all that blood because of their long war, we're talking about Aeneas and the Trojans. Remember, Dante believes that the Romans are descended from Aeneas, that they have fled the destruction of Troy, they have made it to the Italian peninsula, a la Virgil, and that they have fought the Latin tribes who live there in order to establish what will eventually become the Roman Republic, and then the Roman Empire. So we're talking about sometime maybe about 500 before Common Era, assuming, of course, that none of that is just fictitious. The second reference is to those heaps of rings. That's actually not a reference to Aeneas and the Trojans. Rather, that's a reference to the Second Punic War, in which the Romans were defeated by Hannibal and the Carthaginian troops. Remember, Hannibal fights the Romans, and the Romans are at first uh, humiliated by Hannibal and his Carthage troops. And in fact, it is said in 
several places in Livy as well as in Augustine and Orosius that what happened is that all the knights had their hands and fingers cut off so much so that when the battlefield was cleaned up there were heaps there's a difference amongst the various references about how many heaps or how many baskets full of rings but nonetheless there were baskets full of rings from the noble forces that had tried to defeat Hannibal that happened about 216 before common era so we have a ancient reference to Aeneas a slightly more modern reference to the Romans defeated by Hannibal. And then we get this reference to Robert Guiscard, the Norman adventurer. What happened in 1170 of the Common Era, Robert Guiscard's Norman army had defeated the Greek and Islamic forces in Puglia, thereby giving French control over the southern end of Italy, the kingdom of Naples, on down south and even over into Sicily. That's our third reference. And our fourth reference, as I've already told you, is to Manfred and Conradin and their defeat by Charles of Anjou uh, at Benevento and other places. Manfred and Conradin are actually leading Ghibelline forces against the French king, and they are defeated. If you just think through this list, what has happened here is there's an opposition going on. There are the Aeneas and the Trojans. That's a win on the Italian peninsula. Then we have Hannibal and his Carthage troops. That's a loss for the Romans on the Italian peninsula. Then we have Robert Guiscard and his Norman army defeating the Islamic and Greek forces. That's a win in Dante's books on the Italian peninsula. And then we have Manfred and Conradin being defeated by Charles of Anjou. That's a loss in Dante's books. Even though they are leading Ghibelline forces, they are trying in Dante's books to get rid of those wily French. What we have in this complicated passage is a win, a loss, a win, and a loss. That seems extremely important for what goes on in terms of the larger argument in Canto 28, as we will discuss. But just think about this. Win, loss, win, loss. Think about the dualism there. Think about the bifurcation. Think about how things are split into twos. Win, loss, win, loss. This will all become very important to us ahead of us in the canto. And also, I should just point out before we get to any implications about any of this, I should just point out that we're talking about solidly Ghibelline territory, so not Dante's Guelph or Guelph, depending on how you pronounce it, not Dante's Guelph allies, but instead Ghibelline territory. And we are talking about more of our tour of the Italian peninsula. Remember, all throughout the Malabolgia, we've been passing through various cities in Italy, and now we have passed to southern Italy and the bloodshed and war there, and particularly a focus on on the corpses, on the physical cost of war. We'll talk about that in a second. And finally, a third point. Oh, I got more points than I can even keep track of. A third point, again, this is all Ghibelline territory. And who'd we just pass through? 
Guido de Montefeltro. And who was Guido de Montefeltro? A Ghibelline mercenary warlord. So we're still staying in that political alignment of Guido, but now we're giving it this giant historical expanse. And that giant historical expanse involves bodies hacked apart. So let's talk about that bodies hacked apart and the implications. Here's the first implication we can draw from this historical survey of the bloodbath that is southern Italy or Puglia, as Dante calls it. One, we cannot determine based on win or loss who will end up where in the afterlife. This may seem an odd point because we haven't encountered all these figures yet, but many of these figures we will encounter in the future. We have already encountered Aeneas. He's in limbo. Later, we're going to encounter Manfred. In fact, Manfred will be the first soul that Dante the Pilgrim encounters when he begins to climb Mount Purgatory. And then way down the line, we're going to find Robert Giscard up in paradise in the planet Mars or in the circle of the planet Mars. Paradise is set up on the circles, the spheres of paradise, the circles of the planets. You'll note here that Aeneas is in hell. It's limbo, but it's still hell. And that was a win that Manfred is in purgatory. That was a loss. And that Robert Giscard is in paradise. And that was a win. Ultimately, your wins or your losses don't determine your final place in the afterlife. Your, how do I say this? Your conquest or your defeat does not determine your eternal spot. This is a radical idea. Do I, do I need to tell you in a world of a crusading ethic how this is such a radical idea? In other words, you don't necessarily get a spot in heaven just because you go on a crusade or just because you fight a righteous battle as Dante would think Manfred and Conradin were doing against Charles of Anjou. Just because you fight a righteous battle doesn't guarantee your place in the afterlife. Certainly it didn't guarantee Aeneas's place in the afterlife in any place other than in hell. This is a radical idea in a world torn apart by war in which nationalism and tribalism are causing people to make all kinds of claims about their eternal fate based on who they defeated. And two, remember what the Pope promised Guido de Montefeltro. The Pope promised Guido a preemptive pardon. It's the same thing that happened with crusaders. The Pope made promises that if you went on crusade, even crusades inside of Italy and France. If you went on crusades, you got a preemptive pardon. Dante here seems to be saying, no, you do not. In fact, the bloodshed of this world has little to do with your final placement in the afterlife. No matter whether you believe in the afterlife or not, I don't care. No matter whether you believe in it or not, You've got to admit that is a radical idea. Here's a second implication that is even more radical. War is 
bloody hell. And this coming from a poet who lives in a world at war and who himself took part in some of these political machinations that led to bloodshed, who himself was probably at some very significant battles on the Italian peninsula. This poet, who could easily be a war poet who could easily find himself celebrating the glories of, you know, the soldiers returning home. This poet is suddenly turning to the idea that war is bloody hell. And how do you know that? Because there is a focus here on the human toll. Blood spilled, limbs hacked apart, Bones gathered together after a battle, severed stumps. This is the body in pain. And let me tell you that I think without a single doubt that Dante's point here is the cost of empire is the body in pain. And that is a tremendous change for our poet, for any medieval Italian who is forced into tribal allegiances. And you know what's really shocking about all of these bodies in pain and the horrible ways that they have been hacked apart? Some of them are Islamic. When the poet says, as well as those who've been hacked up by the blows in their resistance, to Robert Guiscard. He's talking about the Greeks, of course, in southern Italy, but he's also talking about the Saracens, about the Islamic warriors there. And what is so shocking is that the Islamic wounds are being put on par with the Christian and the Italian nationalist or Italian tribal wounds. This should make you sit up. It's buried in the text, but there it sits. Allow me to divert out into something else. I want to divert out into a book that Elaine Scarry, her name is spelled S-C-A-R-R-Y, but pronounced Scarry. Elaine Scarry wrote in the 80s, and that was quite fundamental to my dissertation. The book is called The Body in Pain, The Making and Unmaking of the World. And here's Scarry's point. Scarry's point is that pain is inexpressible. It unmakes language. The body in pain in the end, becomes something that escapes language itself. And you even know this by being in pain, because when you are in severe pain, you genuinely cannot have a discourse rationally with anyone. In fact, you really often can't say anything except groan, wail, cry. You can shed tears. You can yell. You can holler. All of your articulation becomes incredibly non-linguistic, or at least it becomes non-language-based. And so pain unmakes language. This is one point from Scary in The Body in Pain. And the second is that pain is determined 
Hmm, how do I say this? It's a, the, underneath pain is a determined drive to be expressed. While pain unmakes language, it also drives towards some sort of expression, some sort of explanation, some way to put it into words. In my dissertation work, this involved the difference between historical romances, something written in the 19th century American tradition, historical romances written by white slave owners and by the enslaved people who had escaped from some of those very same plantations. And my basic thesis was that white slave owners defined history as a series of significant battles in all of their historical romances. It's big heroic figures in historical battles and enslaved people changed the definition of history to mean the body in pain. History works out its scars on the body. It's that I got whipped. I got raped. These horrible things happened to my body. And in fact, enslaved people who had escaped to the North were often asked to take off their shirts and show off the scars on their backs. White, um, well-placed men and women would come up from the audience during their speeches and place their fingers inside the scars. But the point for me is that history is redefined as the body in pain. And that's this passage. This passage is a reinterpretation. Isn't it lovely when your own work suddenly dovetails into what you're reading? How convenient can that possibly be? That's what this passage is. It's the body in pain remakes the concept of history itself. In fact, the body in pain cannot be expressed. Stumps and run through limbs and bones and blood everywhere. It can't be expressed, and yet it has to be expressed. And how does the passage start? (laughs) Even with unbound words. So let's go right back to the beginning. This canto begins even with unbound words. This is extremely important to understanding what's going on inside of this canto. Basically, Dante is using a word, unbound words, to indicate prose. Poetry is bound. This is all being written in terzerima. It's got a rhyme scheme. It's got a rhythm scheme. Poetry is extraordinarily formatted. So basically what the poet is saying here is, even if I escaped the confines of poetry, even if I used, to use a modern word, prose. Even if I tried to just write this in prose, who could tell about the blood and the wounds that I now saw, even if he told the tale a bunch of times? I want you to notice the dualism of blood and wounds, the two. Remember I told you win-loss, win-loss dualisms? I want you to hear the dualisms here, blood and wounds. For certain, no tongue could pull it off because neither our discourse nor our memory 
Notice the dualism, too. Neither our speech nor our memory, neither our discourse nor our memory, has the open space to contain as much. This is one of the first times that the distrust of language has fully entered the poem. It has entered it before. But in the case of 28, Canto 28 of Inferno, the distrust of language becomes the pronounced thematic. It becomes the center of how the canto will turn, and it opens it. There is no way to explain the destruction, and dare I say it, although these are souls in hell, the destruction of the body in pain I'm about to see. This will become an increasing thematic throughout comedy, that is, language can't handle it. It is oddly deconstructive, to use a modern word, deconstructive in terms of post-structural literary theory. That is, I am talking about that which language cannot talk about, which makes no sense, which itself is a rhetorical irony and even contradiction that causes the meaning and sense of the passage itself to come apart at its basic level. There is not a doubt here about the talent of the poet. Rather, there is a doubt here about the capacity of the language. Because at that end, when it says, because neither our discourse nor our memory has the open space to contain so much, the word there is seno, which means something like hollow. There's not enough hollowness. There's not enough emptiness. There's not enough space, open, airy space inside discourse or memory to pull off the discussion of how much pain the body can endure. I link this up with the opening of the eighth Malabolgia, in which Dante tells us he needs to temper his genius with virtue. Remember that? Before we got to Ulysses, there was that small little discussion about, hey, from now on, after the crazy metamorphosizing thieves, I've got to figure out how to balance my genius, my talent, my native gifts with some notion of virtue itself. And then we come through the fraudulent counselors and out to this, which is that no amount of talent in the world can finally express the body in pain. And part of the rationale for this is that everything you try to say falls into dualisms. It falls into oppositions, A or B, plus or minus, discourse or memory, blood and wounds, win or loss. It all turns into a series of dualisms that underscore and finally deconstruct the linearity of the narrative being told about the body in pain. Wow, that was a lot to say. Before we pass out of this podcast, let's just read the passage one more time. Inferno, Canto 28, lines 1 through 21. Oh, this is this is wild stuff. And let me tell you, it's about to get wilder. But here's the passage one more time. Even with unbound words, who could tell about the blood and the wounds that I now saw, even if he told the tale a bunch of times? For certain, no tongue could pull it off because neither our discourse nor our memory has the open space to contain so much. If only all these people could be brought together again, 
The ones who, in that fortune-blasted land of Puglia, wailed over the blood that the Trojans shed because of their long war that ended with heaps of rings from the corpses, as Livy writes, and he doesn't make mistakes, as well as those who've been hacked up by blows in their resistance to Robert Giscard, and all those whose scattered bones are still piled up at Ceperano, where every Apulian played it false, and at Tagliacozza, where old Arad de Verari made his victory by schemes rather than armaments. If some of these could display their run-through limbs and others their severed stumps, it still would not begin to come to terms with the horrid ways of the ninth pouch. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. It's a complicated bit here that opens Canto 28, but I think we got through it. Coming up next in the next episode of this podcast is perhaps the single most shocking sinner of all of hell, without a doubt, especially in the modern world. The next episode involves the most shocking sinner in hell. And after that, in the subsequent episode, comes, for me, the most shocking line in all of Inferno. That's all coming right up. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. Please do those things. I could really use it. And I hope you're having as good a time as I am, because this is just wild. To be able to spend this much time with Dante, to be able to spend this kind of slow walk with the comedy, to be able to talk about very important things. The body in pain is the final wreckage of empire. Wow, we need this now, today. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Dante.